Now, I've got a green-tipped Bible, uh, so that is on page 485. If you'd like to have your Bibles open there, please. And today we're looking at the 73rd Psalm, roughly halfway through the Psalms 1 to 150. Let's pray and ask God's help. Our Father, we pray this morning and thank you for this most significant half hour in our week uh, when we come together as your people to listen to you speak to us. And so we pray today that you draw near to us, Heavenly Father. Glorify yourself as you tell us your mind and lead us in the way of repentance and faith as we, your people, hear your word. Help us, Heavenly Father, that the word of God may dwell in us richly as we speak and exhort and encourage one another later after we have this meeting today in the light of what we hear. Give me clarity of expression and give us ready and attentive minds. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. When I studied at Theological College, my principal was a most able theologian. He rarely lectured for more than five minutes. The vast majority of his lectures were question and answer. On one occasion, a student asked him, Dr Knox, how do you know that God loves you? His answer was this, I know that God loves me because my mother told me he did and she wouldn't tell me a lie. That was his answer. In Psalm 73, Asaph, the author under God of the psalm, is a bit like that. He's grappling with a truth which his mother had told him. You see, here in the midpoint of the Psalter, uh, the psalm which leads book three, and there are five books in the Psalms, halfway between Psalm 1 and Psalm 150. Psalm 1 says that how you begin determines how you end up. The person who delights in God's law and meditates on him day and night goes through the peaks peaks and troughs of human experience and comes out at Psalm 150 where there is undiluted praise of the Lord. And halfway through, Asaph has a problem. He wonders whether what his mother has told me is actually true. You see, Psalm 1 says that the righteous is blessed, that the righteous will prosper, that the righteous are like a fruitful tree, but that the wicked are like chaff which the wind will blow away. And that's what Asaph's mother had told him. But he wonders whether it is so. Now notice in this psalm, if you look at verse 1 of Psalm 73, he doesn't leave us in any tension. He tells us in verse 1 his conclusion. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And that is his conclusion. God is good to Israel. This is my testimony. It is entirely consistent with Psalm number 1. But he doesn't just recite this in an unthinking way. He's been through the furnace And this is his conclusion from his heart. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is good, but it's not easy. If you go to verse 14, you will see, All day long, he says, I have been stricken and I have been rebuked every morning. And he says in verse 16, I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me like a wearisome task. Now, here is Asaph. We know what it's like to be led in song. People stand up the front here and lead in song. They generally don't get up and be morbid. Oh, I've had a terrible week. Let's just praise the Lord. They generally have bright and happy faces, as we've seen this morning. They lead us in song. They're happy. 
But Asaph, remember, is a song leader. But he's a song leader who's got a problem. And you see that problem in verse 2 and 3 of Psalm 73. He says, I've got a problem. I almost slipped. I almost stumbled. And verse 3 tells you the problem. Because I was reduced to the envy of the arrogant when I saw, when I gazed on, he just didn't glance, he gazed on the prosperity of the wicked. That was my problem. I could see the wicked and I could see that they were prosperous that they were like a healthy, prosperous tree, and it is all the reversal of everything I believe. It is the reversal of everything which my mother told me. I know Psalm 1 is what I believe. Blessed are the righteous who do not walk, who do not stand, who do not sit with the wicked, the sinner, and the mocker. All that the righteous do prospers. In all that the righteous do, they go well. But I don't think so. I mean, I read the daily newspaper. I watch the daily bulletin. And I just, don't think, I just don't think so. Have a look, he says, I observed, I looked at them, I gazed at them, I looked at the wicked, they seem to be doing very well. And if you look in verse 4 and 5, see how he describes them, fat and sleek, carefree in their lifestyle, no self-doubt, no battles there, no battles with health, no battles with shyness, no battle with bulges, no battle with social exclusion. Just look at them. They're over there, there they are. No pangs until death, their body's fat and sleek. No trouble as others have. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And just look at verse 6 and 7. They are so self-assured. They put around their necklace pride. They are clothed with violent acts. Their, their hearts overflow with folly and they seem to get away with it and they seem to have an answer for everything. He says in verse 9, their mouths, uh, they, they set their mouths against heaven and their stung, tr- tongue struts through the earth. They seem to have this remarkable influence and when they speak, people seem to listen to them. And verse 10, if you look in the footnote of verse 10, it says the waters of a full cup are drained by them. The waters were a terrible threat to the Hebrew. There's no threat to them. They face the depth of the waters and they seem just to drink them up. Absolutely no problems. And God, if you look in verse 11, he seems a long way off. He seems disinterested. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge of the Most High? We can do what we like. It's our earth. It's our universe. When we speak, people listen to us. When we're out there making a statement, every camera's on us. And wicked seems to go unchecked. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. They show every sign of God's blessing. Man, he says, if that's the chaff, I want to be chaff. They don't have any worry. Price of electricity, who cares? The credit card bill, through the roof. Who cares? Doesn't matter to them. When they come into the international airport, they don't have to line up and have their passport checked. They just go through the VIP channel. And they don't come in anyone else's aircraft. They fly in in their own. They are the A-listers. And they are doing very well. And they are an affront to everything which my mother told me. Because it is their very wickedness which seems to cause this prosperity. And he says, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Well, I reach this conclusion, verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean 
and I've washed my hands in innocence. What have I gained from walking in obedience with you? What have I gained by righteousness when I see wickedness in your world going unpunished and actually blessed? But look at what he says in verse 15. He says, but if I had said... I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Look, I want you to know that I respect my fellow believers enough to keep my thoughts to myself. I don't want to disturb their faith. They don't seem concerned about this, but this is a question which is burning at me, but I respect them enough not to disrupt them. But this is an hourly, daily oppression to me. My feet, verse 2, had almost stumbled. My feet had almost lost their grip. Now, this is the problem. I don't know how you feel living in a country like this, with a government like this. But when you read the newspaper, things seem to do so well. I just come to a place like this and I think, isn't this amazing that your politicians come and get interviewed at a press conference and they're never asked a searching question? They're given the microphone and you're free, you go for it. In Australia, if the politician's given the microphone, it's not free. He gets asked tough questions and pushed. Whereas here, it seems, if you do that, well, be very careful. It goes on. Why is it that these people do so well? But look at the major breakthrough, the major turning point. If you're just looking at this psalm as a beautiful poem, look at what he says in verse 17. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then... Everything became clear to me. What was it? He went into the assembly of God's people. Was it that they started to sing a song that brought everything to clarity for him? Was it somehow over morning tea when they're talking together that someone said something to him that actually brought him into the patent clarity of the light? But somehow he comes to reflect on God and when he comes to reflect on God, everything turns around. What was it? He shifts his conviction about what he sees from what he can see to what he is shown. You see, here, here is the major breakthrough. You will either live your life on the basis of observation or you will live your life on the basis of revelation. And notice what happens here. Verse 18, he says, Truly, now I have come to live my life according to revelation. Now I see that you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. I can see that far be it from being inactive, you are very interested indeed. And in fact, you determine their future. Look at verse 18. You place them. You cast them down. He says in verse 20, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as whiffs, fantasies, phantoms. And he comes with this wonderfully renewed conviction in verses 21 to 26. He says, I was embittered. When I was living my life on the basis of observation, I could see that I wasn't doing well. I wasn't gaining for my relationship with you. And I reduced myself to animal level. I was like a brute beast before you. Well, knowing you doesn't pay. Knowing you doesn't put food on my table. Knowing you doesn't put money in my bank account. And he says in verse 21 and 22, I was brutish. I was ignorant to speak like that. I was just nothing better than a beast. But now that I have come to revelation, have a look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. 
I now see that you uphold my right hand, you guide me, you counsel me, you will receive me into glory. Who am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I now see by revelation that my flesh and my heart may fail, but you, God, are the strength of my heart and you are my portion forever. And he sums up there in verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. They're like a whiff, a fantasy, a phantom, chaff that the wind blows away. I now see that what my mother told me is quite true. I now see that what you say in Psalm 1 is absolutely certain. And so verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Well, here's the word for us, dear friends, for this week. Stand back and notice in this wonderful psalm what an incredible pilgrimage this is for this man Asaph and how it should feed your soul for this week. Look at the start. Look down at verses 1 and 2. The wicked are prospering. Asaph is slipping. But then when you come to the end, the wicked are slipping. You place them on slippery ground and surely the psalmist has found stability. Surely the psalmist has found refuge. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Why? Because he has moved from observation to revelation. He sees the wicked as they are. You see, they are dependent. They are vulnerable. They are a fantasy. But before he said, oh, they're carefree, only because they ignore reality. Before he said, they're self-assured, only because they're foolish idolaters and they worship their own pride. And before he said they were wealthy only because they valued trinkets as wealth. And he comes to a right view of himself. I was a brute beast to think like that. And then to a right view of God. Look at verse 23 again. Look at God here. I am with you. You hold me. You guide me. You will receive me. Who am I I in heaven but you? God is my strength and my portion and he is my strength and portion forever because observation has moved to revelation. And I ask you this morning, are you living life on the basis of observation? Your feet will slip. Or are you living life on the basis of revelation? Here is a city. It is a red light city. It just doesn't have a red light area. It's full of red light activity. It is a debauched city, and here is one unimpressive man of little physical presence. He is no orator. On the basis of observation, he can't make a difference. But on the basis of revelation, God says to this man, don't be afraid, keep speaking, because I have many people in this city. The man is Paul. The city is Corinth. Observation, revelation. Here is an accident. Here is a business collapse. Here is a rogue cell in my body. Observation, it's a catastrophe. Revelation, God is at work in all things. For my good, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Here is a cross, a criminal's death. The curtain and the temple torn in two at that moment that the criminal dies. Observation, it's a coincidence. Revelation. It is the greatest act of rescue and reconciliation the world has ever known. 
And at that moment where the thief, where the criminal dies, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom by the hand of God saying that there is now access into God's presence. Observation, revelation. Observation. Here is Stephen, a most able apologist. He is stoned to death. That will slow the gospel down. Revelation, that actually increases the broadcast of the gospel. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Observation, revelation, observation. I am a worm. I have few gifts. I have no charismatic personality. I am not entrepreneurial. I do not have the gift of the gab. I am shy. Revelation. You are a child of God filled with his spirit and when you know your weakness, that is when you are at your greatest strength because your greatest strength is in him. Will you build your conviction on observation or revelation? I hear it all the time. When I'm saved, am I saved for all eternity? I'll build it on observation and people will say, no, I know people who were saved once and they don't seem to be saved anymore. Build it on revelation. Jesus says, God has you safely in his hand. Jesus said, I have you safely in my hand, and I and the Father are one. That is revelation. Will you build your conviction this week on observation or revelation? Now, if you build your conviction on observation, look back at verse 2. You see the fruit of it in the first part of this psalm. In verse 2, the psalmist says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, and my steps had nearly slipped and stumbled because I couldn't take my eyes off observing the prosperity of the wicked. And if you notice in that first part of the psalm, God is never mentioned. He's entirely absent apart from verse 11. That's the only time he's actually mentioned. And in verse 11, it's as though to say, well, can he be known? Is he at all interested? And yet when this man goes to the sanctuary and when he starts building his conviction on revelation, look at verse 18 to 20. God is in every verse. And verses 22 to 28, God is in every verse. This man is filled of a testimony. That is the fruit of basing your conviction on revelation and not on observation. That is faith. It doesn't rest observably on things that can be seen, but it rests on God's word. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, being certain of what we do not see, and without faith it is impossible to please God. Sometimes faith is based rationally. Sometimes faith is based logically. Sometimes faith is based on evidence. At other times I just believe God, even there is no rational, logical reason to do so. But I believe him. Now I ask you today, have you based your faith on observation or on revelation? You look at the nations around, Burma, Laos, North Korea, Syria, ISIS. They seem to be out of control. That's observation. But on the basis of revelation, I know that God is building his church. That God has made a promise to his son that his are the kingdoms of this earth. The end of the earth are his possessions. I know on the basis of revelation the reality of the situation and I keep bringing my conviction back to that. Oh, this week, you don't know the sort of week I've got. I've got an interview with a boss. I don't know what he wants to talk to me about. The doctor has called me in for another medical appointment to receive the results of my test. Oh, I've got another member of that family of mine 
who seem so distant with me and I've got to look them in the face and talk to them from my heart. You do not know what sort of a week I've got. Observation, it's going to be a stressful, bad week. But revelation, revelation says my grace is sufficient for you and my grace and my power is made perfect not when you feel ready for whatever's coming but when you realise your weakness and that your strength lies in me. That which humbles me is good for me because it drives me to where my strength truly lies. Observation or revelation. Now you go out this door today and you go back into KL and every preacher knows that the biggest challenge to what he says is that you think that what I'm saying in here is true but when you get out there it loses all its relevance and reality. That works very well at smack. It's good there. Or it's true to the Bible. But out there, you live completely differently. It's the temptation we all face. I'll base my conviction out there on observation and in here on revelation. But I'm telling you that from my past experience, I know that what is true here is true out there. That this is the true reality which I have to keep applying out there. If I live by observation out there, God is distant and my feet had almost slipped. But if I live by revelation out there, I know my strength is in God himself. And that's when I am strong. It's an oppressive puzzle. That's what this man says. Not when bad things happen to good people, but when really good things happen to bad people. Evil triumphs, wickedness is blessed. The cause of the oppressor is relentless. They go from strength to strength. Every new election, maybe this time we'll have an opposition that's in government. Maybe. Probably not. (laughs) Daily examples in the newspaper, in the daily news. Wicked, prosperous. Corruption, oppression. Dark times ahead for the believer. Well, there it is in verse 11, isn't it? It's all there. Can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? It's despairing, isn't it? But Revelation says that whoever seems to be in control is not ultimately in control. That there is a superior authority, and that's in KL, but there is a supreme authority who has delegated that authority to the superior authority. And we say yes to the superior authority until it clashes with the supreme authority in God himself. That's Revelation. And Asaph says, I've come to this conviction through pained experience. See, I once once listened to a student who preached on this psalm when he was 21 years of age. And it was a perfectly good sermon and I had to critique the sermon. And I said to him at the end of the sermon, look, I just want you to know, I've got nothing to say about that sermon. Just don't preach it for another 50 years. (laughs) In other words, come to terms with what you see in life. Come to terms with the pain of this, seeing real wickedness, undiluted wickedness, doing so well in God's world. So that you can cry out with God to God like Asaph. Oh God, my feet had almost slipped. I almost dropped into depression and despair until I went into your sanctuary. 
And then I realise that they are on slippery ground, that you are in control and you are the one who is to be trusted. It's a wonderful psalm, isn't it? God is almost vacant. He's not there in the first half and yet when he comes to base his conviction on revelation, God is in every verse. When we travel, I tell you what I miss, one of the things I miss, I certainly don't miss food from Australia. There's plenty of that great stuff here. But one thing I miss... When we're in the UK especially, we went up to this place in North Wales and we were at a convention there. And I said to a fellow one day, I said, there's an interesting geographical feature out of this campsite. He said, oh, what what is that? I said, well, I don't know what you'd call it. It's sort of mud and then it's got water. What what do you call it? He said, that's a beach. I said, oh, that's a beach, is it? A beach? You want a beach? I'll show you a beach. At that point, I became an obnoxious Australian. I'll show you a beach. And there's a beach in Sydney, and you've probably heard of it. It's called Bondi Beach. It's a great beach. People come from overseas. I often try and take them to Bondi Beach. And at Bondi Beach, there's a point jutting out from the beach called Ben Buckler. And you can stand there behind a wire fence. And if there's a swell on, people can stand there and take photos of the big waves coming, and the spray from the wave will come up. But everyone knows that in every Australian beach where there are waves, every ten waves will contain two waves which are super big. They're just about 50% bigger than all the other waves. So you know it's going to come. Oh, here's a wave that's manageable. Here's another one. But I'm going to get two that are about 50% higher. And it's great, especially being with people from overseas, especially people from America. They've got their camera up there. They don't know what to expect. I say, oh, this is great, Dave, this is great. Yeah, I know, there's two bigger waves coming and they're going to be very scary. And then the two bigger ones come, are we safe here, Dave? Well, let's hope so, eh? Just keep taking your photos. (laughs) You see, if you've ever been in the surf, you know what a threatening thing it is to face a big wave and it's about to drop on you. And there was a man who once said these words, I have learned... See, the secret is to learn it. It does not come naturally. Listen to what he said. I have learned to kiss the wave which drives me onto the rock of all ages. Now, that's that's exactly what Asaph's saying. I have learned by revelation that this wave which seems so out of control, which seems such a threat to me, I've learned to kiss it. I've learned to embrace it because it casts me onto the rock of all ages, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And that's what Asaph, I I slipped. My feet were stumbling when I was living according to observation. And then I went into your sanctuary and my feet were established on solid ground. I have learned to kiss the wave that casts me onto the rock of all ages. Just look at this psalm again. Look at verse 1. Truly. See, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Verse 13 actually has that word as well. Truly in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And then look at verse 18, the third one. Truly you set them in slippery places. You have made them, you make them fall to ruin. Observation, despair, Revelation, strength in weakness. Well, let's pray. Uh, We pray for one another 
Heavenly Father, because we do not know what this week holds. We do not know the difficulty and pain that the week holds. We do not know this week how wickedness is going to prosper in our nation. We do not know how wickedness will seem to prosper in our world. But we want to go from here knowing our Heavenly Father that our faith and trust is in you, that we have made the sovereign God our refuge and that underneath are his everlasting arms. We thank you for this psalm. We thank you from the despair from which you delivered Asaph so that he with us could say, it is good to be near God, for I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your words and works. Teach us to kiss the wave which casts us onto the rock of all ages. And we pray this prayer in the name of our Lord Jesus, trusting in his merits alone. Amen.